I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. My guest today is Barry Krako, a board-certified internist, sleep medicine specialist, and professor of psychiatry and behavioral health at Mercer University School of Medicine in Savannah, Georgia, having earlier established a sleep clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico. In his 30-plus years in the field, he has pioneered innovative techniques for the treatment of chronic nightmares, chronic and complex insomnia, upper airway resistance syndrome, obstructive and central sleep apnea, and restless leg syndrome and periodic limb movement disorder. He is the author of four books on sleep disorders, including the just-published Life-Saving Sleep, New Horizons in Mental Health Treatment. So Barry, welcome to Delving In. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our discussion. So judging by your last book, uh, Life-Saving Sleep, your fascination with the topic hasn't waned in all these years. So what is it about sleep medicine that has held your interest for so long? And I would guess that the subtitle of your recent book, the subtitle being New Horizons in Mental Health Treatment, might give a clue. It's a very big clue. There is a long-standing uh, and ongoing crisis in the mental health profession, uh, largely uh, ignored, unaddressed, discounted. It's, it's not really clear why this is happening, but the mental health professional community, as well as the mental health patients seeking treatment, uh, do not really understand the nature of sleep problems that are coexistent with, let's say, anxiety, depression, PTSD. And I say the words crisis because this knowledge has been known for a long time that sleep problems in mental health patients are actually disorders. They're not symptoms. They're not complaints. They're not issues. They're not conditions. They're not problems. They are disorders. They are separate. They are distinct. They run independently, co-occurring simultaneously, however you want to call it, with the mental health condition. And until a mental health provider sees that, they don't have any way to actually give really high-level evidence-based care for the sleep problem. Instead, it's prescription after prescription, or in some cases, even more, in some ways more, unfortunately, it's psychotherapy after psychotherapy after psychotherapy, when in fact, the patient needs something entirely different. Yeah, so I guess what you're saying is that it's not merely a symptom, it's it, it's, its own thing, and it has to be treated, sometimes has to be treated separately, whereas the mainstream belief seems to be that sleep problems will disappear when the mental health problem disappears. So if the PTSD is su successfully treated or the anxiety or the depression, then the sleep, if it's only a symptom, should disappear, but it, it doesn't necessarily. Exactly. And the irony, and I found this irony to be just, I, I don't know, sometimes I get ecstatic over it. Sometimes I get depressed over it. But the DSM if you go back even to DSM-4-TR, they have all of this information in the DSM describing what's, in a, I mean, in a summarized fashion, much of what's in my new book, Life-Saving Sleep, because the people who wrote the stuff in the DSM were influenced by many sleep doctors or sleep researchers who were probably psychiatrists as well, saying these key words. Sleep problems may need independent clinical attention. 
And that phrasing has been around for a long time, even before the DSM-4TR. That, that phrasing was back in the 1990s. And I used to look and follow the DSM, DSM-5. If a psychiatrist or psychologist read the DSM-5, the whole sleep disorder section, and read everything about it and carefully understood it, they would know so much more about what they're supposed to be doing in the treatment of their patients. Instead, I'll give you an example. I am always seeing people who have been to multiple therapists. They've been to one or two prescribing doctors or more. They've tried anywhere from five to 10 different sedating medications, including the sleeping pills or the psychotropics. And throughout that process, when you say to them, what benefits did you get? It's very clear that they're coming to see me because they were never getting benefits. And you ask the question, well, why did it take you so long to come to a sleep specialist? And the answer is alarming because they're saying, well, I thought I thought this is, was as good as it gets. I thought I thought this was the treatment plan. I mean, I nobody told me anything different. I only heard about this whole thing called sleep medicine just recently. And how did you get interested in the topic to begin with? Because I mean, it's a little bit unusual, I think, uh, as an internist. I think um, at least nowadays, most sleep medicine doctors are pulmonologists. Divine Providence got me into sleep medicine. I, 1988, I was uh, in the middle of writing some books, some screenplays, all kinds of things that were outside of medicine. I'd finished up my internal medicine residency. I was doing uh, work in urgent cares. I was beginning to do work in emergency medicine. But a family member called me up on the phone and said, hey, Barry, you're a doctor. I have nightmares. Can you fix them? I said, well, I'm an internist. So what am I supposed to do? He said, I don't know. You're a doctor. I mean, can't you figure something out? Well, that started me on a journey, which was very interesting and got me involved with, and again, divine providence. I was in Albuquerque. And while I got this call from the individual to go ahead and you know give them some help about nightmare treatment. Two researchers were doing work on the treatment of nightmares right next door to me, University of New Mexico School of Medicine, Department of Psychiatry. So if you ask the question like how many people in 1988 were doing research on the treatment of nightmares in the world, the answer would have been somewhere between two and five places in the whole world. Two places were in Albuquerque. One was at the graduate school at the University of New Mexico, and one was at the medical school. I ended up working with the medical school psychiatrist, and we published the first paper on using a cognitive imagery technique to treat chronic nightmares. So the reason that background is so important is that when we finally published a really big paper on the use of this cognitive imagery technique. It's called imagery rehearsal therapy. We showed that when you treat PTSD patients with for their nightmares, no PTSD treatment, only nightmare treatment, which is a sleep disorder, the PTSD got better. 
That was published in JAMA, was the lead article in JAMA in 2001. Ever since then, that was the first article to ever show that in a randomized controlled trial, that when you treat a sleep disorder, the anxiety, depression, and PTSD get better as opposed to what was the conventional wisdom that you no doubt would have been trained with or heard about, which was, well, like you said, treat the anxiety, depression, PTSD, the nightmares will go away. And so this bi-directional relationship was not really being covered. And all through the 1990s, we were doing research on nightmare treatment, as were a few other groups. We published this study, and this broke open the field of sleep medicine into a whole new realm, because now sleep medicine said, wait a second, why don't we start looking at other kinds of sleep disorders in patients that are having mental health problems and see if we get the same effect. And so other research, as well as myself, kept pushing this, and we eventually found three really big ones, that most mental health patients complaining of sleep problems have either nightmares or insomnia or sleep breathing issues. And the part that was so amazing, because we focused on PTSD patients since we did this initial work in nightmare treatment, we found regularly 80 to 90% of treatment-seeking trauma survivors with either PTSD or PTSD symptoms who complained about their sleep, despite myriad other sleep treatments they'd had, 80 to 90% had sleep apnea. So once again, you're taking something that was assumed to be a symptom and saying, no, it can be treated as primary. And I think with nightmares, especially even more so than uh, a mental health diagnosis, the assumption I think still very much is that, oh, a nightmare is a symptom of, let's say, of trauma or, or preoccupation or worry or something like that, and not a problem in its own right. Absolutely. And the same thing with insomnia. In other words, oh, well, you're, you're stressed out. You know, you suffer anxiety, you suffer depression. You know, of course you have insomnia. We need to get you medicated or we need to give you therapy to solve these two problems and anxiety or depression, and then your insomnia should go away. Now, the other angle, and this is both interesting and problematic at the same time, keep in mind that many of these mental health professionals did recognize a sleep symptom, but their hands were tied because nobody was training them and saying, so when you see this sleep symptom, what do you do? You say, well, I don't know, give them sleep hygiene or tell them a little bit of things you learned at some course you took. But instead, what most of them got was a pill. And the pills don't even work that well. Lots of people try these medications and then they get off of them. And this is one thing I've stressed in the book. I'm not anti-drug. I'm not anti-medication. There are people who've had life-changing experiences having their sleep disorders treated with trazodone or Ambien. And so I'm like, that's fantastic. You're one of the few, but that's fantastic that you're getting this kind of response. And this leads then into the question of like, what is the response you're supposed to get? And this is where I think a lot of the confusion has stemmed, that so many people really do not understand what the objective is. Like if we say you have this sleep problem over here and a mental health problem over here, what exactly do we expect to happen when the sleep problem is fixed. Well, number one, we certainly expect it to improve the mental health distress. We expect anxiety, depression, PTSD to get better. But 
most importantly, we're saying to you, this whole biological system called sleep is going to get better. You're going to become a healthier person. And why is that? Because your brain is going to work better. That's what happens when you sleep better. Your brain works better. So it's a pretty straightforward connection. And yet lots of people are not connecting that. So we're kind of trapped by our, our own assumptions. It's, it's almost impossible to see the problems of what they are if you assume a, a uh, causal relationship that just doesn't include what you're saying. That, that, that's fabulous that you say it that way, because what I had to do, and we can't do it on the radio, but I'll try to describe it as best I can, that when a person would come in and have these discussions with me in clinic, remember, these are patients who've been in therapy or medications for 10, 20, 30 years. They don't know anything about this sleep stuff. They're thinking, okay, well, nothing else is working. Why don't I come to a sleep doctor and see what they have to offer? I draw a picture for them of brain waves. And I draw these very slow, methodical, large sine wave looking pictures. And I say, well, that's deep sleep. That's exactly what you should have every night when you're sleeping for much of the night. Let me show you what you're doing. And then I would draw these squiggles that would go like this all across. And I would say, this is probably what's going on. We need to put you in the sleep lab. We need to see if that, in fact, is true. We need to confirm whether it's true. We need to find out what's causing it, which is often a sleep breathing issue. It could be leg movements. Sometimes it can be anxiety and like hyper arousal, but that's surprisingly rare as the primary cause. It's much more likely there's a physiological basis for what is happening. And that can be various flavors of sleep disordered breathing. The remarkable thing is that once a patient goes through just the steps I've said, like having a little discussion about it, like, did you know? This could be physical. You go, well, no, nobody ever told me this was physical. I always assumed it was a psychological problem. Okay, well, it could be physical. Now let's go check, put you in the sleep lab, come back with a test and say, this is physical. This is a physiological problem. You can imagine, because you've been in the field, how much people love to hear their mental health issues might have a physical component. It could be your thyroid. It could be your hormones. Well, in this case, it could be sleep disordered breathing. So when they hear that, many of them, a surprisingly large number, because I thought with PTSD, depression, there'd be tremendous resistance. And there is some. But some of them are going, this is fantastic news. I really want to try a CPAP machine. I really want to do something for my breathing because you've just proven to me that my arousals that are fragmenting my sleep like crazy is caused by the nature of my breathing, which is erratic, irregular, and broken up. So it's wonderful news for these people when they hear it, and it gives a tremendous sense of confidence and optimism. And that's what I'm trying to preach with the book, because this is really a life-saving change people can go through when they are actually given the opportunity to see they have physiological sleep disorders, not just the psychological ones. So there's less, uh, for most people, less stigma uh, having a physical rather than a psychological problem. And, and the other is that there's maybe a more straightforward treatment plan 
than there would be for something psychological, which, you know, it's psychology is partly a science, partly art. It's, it's very hard to pin down exactly how to help somebody. And there are many, many, many different ways of doing so, some of which work, some of, some of which don't. You know, in order to put this into context, let's talk about the prevalence. Sleep disorders, I assume, are far more common than generally recognized. I know the statistics are really hard to come by because that kind of epidemiology, I mean, it's really hard to do those kind of studies. And from what I've read on the internet, the the rates of this thing can of sleep disorders in general can be anywhere from on the severe end from like four percent to twenty percent. I mean, it, it's very variable. But nevertheless, it seems to me just from what I've read and and just my own clinical experience and talking to family and friends that it's sleep disorders in general are probably at least as as common as let's say anxiety is or depression is. I and mean, we're talking about something that's extraordinarily common and yet underrecognized. Yeah, you've put it well again, because uh, we're talking about something that is, you know, from an evolutionary point of view, your your biology is telling you you should sleep and you should get good sleep because what is sleep doing for you? It's it's regenerating you. It's a, a, allowing you to be uh, awake the next day. It's allowing you to be alert. It's allowing you to be productive. If it's not doing that, there's something wrong with the sleep. And, you know, the Gallup poll with the National Sleep Foundation has been coming out for years now. Every couple of years, they do this really huge survey. And two out of every three adults have problems with sleep. And I'm not just talking about people saying things like, oh, I wish I had more sleep or I need more sleep. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about questions like, you have difficulty falling asleep at night. You have difficulty staying asleep at night. You wake up too early at night. How would you describe the restorative qualities of your sleep? So you're talking about two out of every three adults can have one of those complaints. That's, that's an enormous amount of people suffering from sleep issues. Now, when you get into something like sleep apnea, if you look at cohorts, various cohorts, the, the prevalence of sleep apnea is so common in cardiovascular disease that cardiologists have opened up their own new American Academy of Cardiovascular Sleep Medicine. So heart hospitals all over the world are probably going to start having their own sleep centers inside their heart hospitals because more than 50 to 80% of the patients will have sleep apnea. In the mental health community, you also see this. In fact, at Mercer Medical School, where we work at a behavioral health program called Gateway Behavioral Health, we're currently starting a training program where the residents in psychiatry are learning sleep disorders medicine. And in fact, next week, we're starting our very first sleep clinic that will be operated by the psychiatry residents and there is a possibility over the coming years, we'll also incorporate a sleep lab or sleep center type, you know, arrangement in mental health in particular, which is what a lot of the book is about. We're talking about rates again that are extraordinarily high for insomnia, sleep disorder, breathing, nightmares, and also restless legs and leg jerks. And so if you ask the general population versus mental health, obviously mental health, it's larger. In fact, it's my experience, it's my opinion that the mental health patient population 
represents the largest cohort in the world of people with sleep disorders that are obviously not getting treated properly because they're being told it's sleep symptoms and so forth. In the general public, there's still an enormously high rate. And it could be as high as, say, one out of three adults have something like sleep apnea. And you put that together with the number that have insomnia or nightmares and other conditions, again, you're getting close to half the population. So I want to ask one more sort of context kind of question, and, and that's how aware are most people of the quality and quantity of their own sleep? Because in, in my training and experience, I find that people are notoriously inaccurate about their sleep in both directions. They, they think it's good when it's bad, and they think it's bad when it's good. So it seems like the, the subjective component is, is really iffy. Stuart, you've really done your homework. I mean, this is, this is the nuts and bolts of it, that people think that sleep is all about quantity. You know, if you ask somebody, uh, how's your sleep? They'll often talk about how many hours of sleep they got. Then you say, well, no, but how's the quality of your sleep? And they'll go, uh, well, the quality, well, I got six hours. And, and, and you, you're like, wait, no, I didn't ask you about the numbers. I'm saying, how well did you sleep? And a lot of people go, I don't know, I was sleeping. <laughs> or, you know, what am, I, what am I supposed to say? But a lot of people with very obvious problems will go, well, I don't think I'm sleeping that well. I wake up a lot. I go to the bathroom at night. I have bad dreams. I don't feel rested in the morning. And I say, well, do you connect that to the quality of your sleep? Now, that's where it gets tricky because a lot of them will go, well, I'm not sure what you mean because I just thought if I laid in bed longer and got more sleep, maybe I would feel better. And I say, well, well, do you? Does that work? And it does work for some people, but at very, very few. And the reason is that the problem is a sleep quality problem, like the brainwave issue I described earlier. If the quality of sleep is compromised, then the individual is not getting into the deeper stages that we call delta sleep or REM sleep. They're not staying there. Instead, they're spending lots of time in what's called stage one and stage two, which are superficial stages of sleep required to be able to sleep, but you don't want to spend too much time in them because it means it's superficial sleep. And you will end up feeling tired and sleepy during the day as well as cognitively impaired. So it's as if they, they're in the entryway and they never make it all the way into the, uh, into the house, the house being the house of sleep. And they never make it to the second floor either. I mean, or maybe it's the basement, depending upon the analogy. But the depth of sleep is a really, really big deal. And there's research now coming out on the fact of how messed up our scoring techniques, our metrics, our, our assessments are in trying to understand sleep. I'm talking about regular sleep centers now. They're, they're, they're very far behind research in terms of how to understand the quality of somebody's sleep. You can look at some things like REM and Delta. You can look at the fragmentation of the sleep. You can look at how continuous the sleep is, and you can make some decent statements about it. And you can even treat the individual, say, you know, with a PAP machine for their sleep breathing disorder and see an improvement in all of this. But I'm saying the highest level of science has not been applied yet to our understanding of sleep. And so in a clinical world, we're seeing really just sort of, what's the word, not modest, but we're seeing systems 
that are not conveying the highest level of information to the doctors and to the patients. We're seeing something we can work with, and then the patient can come back and tell us, well, I'm feeling better, so I guess we're moving in the right direction. So you do need to have quantity of quality sleep. <laughs> I mean, there is a sort of minimum number of hours I would think you need to have of those deep stages of sleep of Delta and, and REM. And those are very different in terms of what they do for the brain, but both of them are very, very necessary. So it's, it's not, it, so quantity is not in and of itself the right measure. It has to be quantity of quality sleep. Perfectly said, perfectly said. And so where that gets really interesting is that individuals who now get into this and they go, I really want help. All of this is covered in the life-saving sleep book is that they want to ask initially, but how many hours? And the response is when we fix the quality of your sleep, that's when we can figure out how many hours you actually need. And so I have a personal experience with this. In 1998, I began using a dental appliance to treat sleep apnea. And I have a whole TED talk on this. It's called, uh, Why Do You Wake Up at Night? And it was uh, filmed at a TEDx in uh, Albuquerque uh, in 2017. And so that's, that's on the, um, the internet still. And I talk about how when I use this device, it was the first time I slept through the night in something like five years. This is part of my own personal discovery about you know, sleep problems. And when I began using that dental device, the quality of my sleep was so good that for the next three years, I did not experience daytime sleepiness. I did not know what that was. Prior to that, I'd had much daytime sleepiness going all the way back to the age of 13. But from that point forward in 1998, almost no sleepiness, no fatigue, tremendous levels of energy. My wife and I opened up a sleep research center, a sleep um, medical center. We wrote, uh, uh, she helped me write one book on nightmare treatment. I wrote another book. Um, I mean, just an abundance of energy. And sometimes I was sleeping five hours a night, six hours a night, seven hours a night. My average was somewhere between six and seven for months or between six and a half and seven and a half for months. I had always been somebody who needed seven and a half, eight, eight and a half hours. Once the quality kicked in, it was just phenomenal that the total number of hours of sleep I needed just seemed to reduce itself automatically. Yeah, so, so getting back to the question of, of uh, subjective perceptions of sleep, I mean, it seems to me that probably the most important and straightforward question is, you know, do you feel rested when you wake up in the morning? And then the second question would be, you know, do you feel rested most of the day? <laughs> you know, and that would be sort of the critical kind of questions. Absolutely. And, and so if you get people focusing on that, then they can answer. But what's the big caveat? What is it that confounds that question? So you can go and ask that question to people while you are in a clinic, you, you know, wherever you ask them, and they will give you either the wrong answer or a clear, I'm sorry, or a, or a cloudy answer because that morning they consumed caffeine. 
And once they drank the coffee, which they now incorporate as the normal part of waking up and don't recognize that normal sleepers don't drink coffee in the morning, have no need to, the cortisol burst, so to speak, is so excellent that they get into the shower and they start singing. So people who sleep great are not using caffeine. People who have trouble getting up, people who have bad sleep at night, if they drink the caffeine, you ask them the question, they can't answer it clearly. So then you have to say, well, do you ever remember a time what it was like before you were drinking caffeine? And they often say, no, I don't. <laughs> so then I say, well, how far back does this go? I say, well, I started drinking caffeine when I was a teenager. I say, well, you know, did you ever think about why you started drinking caffeine when you were a teenager? And sometimes they'll connect the dots and go, yeah, I remember being tired and I couldn't get through school and so forth and so on. So getting somebody to focus on these two questions that you just said, how do you feel when you wake up and what's your energy like during the day are incredibly powerful, even though they're subjective, incredibly powerful statements as to what's going on in your sleep at night. And it also, I mean, I imagine that, you know, you're, you're seeing people who have sleep issues, but it can also work the other way. Somebody can actually be getting better sleep than they realize. And, but they remember waking up during the night and maybe they woke up and fell back asleep again. And in fact, their sleep would be okay. But re remembering the, the nighttime awakenings, they would think, oh, I, I, I was tossing and turning all night. When in fact, in a sleep lab, you might show that they're actually sleeping almost the whole night. Well, that's an interesting type of case that usually doesn't occur that way. But there are some people, absolutely, who can wake up, can even have some tossing and turning, but in the course of the night, for whatever reasons, they're still getting high quality. They wake up, they say they're refreshed, they go about their business during the day and they think they've done well. I don't like to tell them they're wrong because I believe if they have that level of energy that's not artificially induced by caffeine or medication, then I say, you know, your sleep quality must be good. But the pattern you describe. It turns out that if a person says they wake up a few times a night and doesn't feel that rested, that's a few times a night we were taught put two zeros at the end of the number. So if they said they woke up five times, you say, right, you might have woken up 500 times. And these are called short arousals. You know, they're very fragmented pieces of sleep where you've got five seconds of being awake, you would never know that. Then you go back to sleep for 45 seconds. Then you wake up again for 15 seconds. Then you go back to sleep for 60 seconds. And that can go on all night. So that can be hundreds and hundreds of broken up pieces of sleep. That person can't know that. Yeah. And as you say in your book, if, if the awakening is not long enough, I mean, it has to be even longer than seconds. Three minutes, I think, is the shortest period in order for someone to remember it in the morning. So it's, it's very easy, in effect, to have all sorts of, uh, a huge number of numbers of awakenings without having any awareness in the morning. So that's part of the kind of the subjective experience is not, not being accurate. Right, and seeing and is believing is the big deal. So when we opened up our sleep center, because we left the university to open up a private community-based sleep center, and we knew the patients had to see the sleep study on the computer when they woke up in the morning. We didn't even wait 
for me to finish with my diagnosis and interpretation, I train the sleep technologist to bring the patient in front of the computer and say, I'm not giving you the diagnosis. Dr. Kirko has to do that later. But he wants me to show you some of the things we saw last night on your sleep study that will probably be important when he does his interpretation. So they would see these periods of sleep fragmentation. They would see where they went into REM sleep and they were supposed to be in REM for 20 minutes. And you go, wait, why did I just come out of REM? I was only there for two minutes. And then the sleep tech says, well, looks like you have a breathing event here. And REM sleep is the most sensitive stage of sleep. And so sleep breathing events are worse in REM sleep. And so REM sleep gets broken up because of sleep breathing events. Or they see leg jerks or they see other forms of arousal. The point is, the patients look at this, they're going, that's me? That's what I was doing last night? But, but I was just in there sleeping. I, I don't remember any of this. And the sleep tech says, yeah, that's why we're showing you because seeing is believing. And that's a huge component of sleep medicine that needs to help people understand what they're going through. So I guess the most common problem is obstructive sleep apnea. And, and it's probably the, um, this growing awareness of that. And, and my assumption is that uh, that's caused by, uh, I guess, a weakening of the musculature in the back of the throat. And it, it closes off, uh, especially with mouth breathing and especially on the back, but even without that. And that, uh, that's why the oral appliance can, can sometimes work because it keeps the throat from closing off. And these problems get worse with, with age, I would think. You know, the, the musculature weakens. Do you also get a sense that this problem is becoming more prevalent for some reason? Or is it something that we've always had since the dawn of time? My sense is that it is becoming more prevalent, although we've, we've always had it. Uh, but I do think that there are various factors that would point to the likelihood that things have gotten worse. And the biggest thing, contrary to popular wisdom, would be not the obesity factor, because most people don't understand that, because oh, you've nailed it, obesity is not the cause of sleep disordered breathing. Obesity simply worsens sleep disordered breathing. The cause is the throat, just as you outlined. And I think there's a real question out there. It comes from many, many different pathways. Evolutionary biology and anthropology, in fact, are, are looking at these questions as well. That the jaw structure of humans seems to be getting smaller. And if that's true, that's the very best explanation of how you would end up with more sleep disorder breathing. Because the smaller the jaw gets for different cohorts of people, you will see that their airway matches that, that it's smaller as well. And so if it's smaller, then it's already at risk. Then you have the whole other questions about fitness, nutrition. What is it that makes the human airway become weakened? Uh, like if you, this might sound funny, but what if everybody was still going to church or synagogue or to a mosque? I don't know if they sing at a mosque, but what if everybody was going and singing regularly? Well, you could actually speculate that regular singing is probably something that strengthens the throat muscles. And so you have to ask the question, with so much decline in religion nowadays, 
and so many other things like like are people actually using their voices as much as they should be that's just that's just an aside my point is whatever it is that could be weakening the throat muscles that is likely to be contributing to why the prevalence of a sleep breathing problem seems to be getting worse in society there's a theory out there that when you don't breastfeed that the child's hard palate will not develop properly there's a theory out there about how orthodontics can push the teeth back in a certain way with headgear and also narrow the airway. There's even more. <laughs> and so I'm not up on all of it, but I can tell you that many people in the field of sleep medicine think that the problem is getting worse, not that it was just always there and now we're spotting it. So you don't talk much in the book about sleep hygiene. I'm, I'm wondering if, it's, if that's because you, you um, don't think it's that important compared to these other, other topics that you talk about. But, you know, it, it does seem to me that, especially with the age of electronics and electric lights and all that, that at least from the circadian rhythm point of view, that things have gotten worse. There's, it's not conducive to relaxing and winding down and getting at least the problem of getting to sleep in the, in the first place, falling asleep. No, you're spot on again, because I mean, there, there's no question there's a psychological as well as physiological process that is going on. And the psychology is very, very powerful and has a lot to do with the way people think about their sleep, how they understand it, how they relate to it, what their expectations are and so forth. But the sleep hygiene component turns out to be very small unless you're just an extremist. I mean, if you say, you know, I have to watch TV to fall asleep and I want the TV to be on and loud and light all while I'm sleeping, of course that's going to affect somebody's sleep. Same thing with a with a screen, with a, with a phone, a computer, whatever. But the big issue in psychology is that there are patterns that people develop often based on emotion that's driving them to function in a certain way then they get into the bad pattern. The bad pattern then makes the insomnia, as one example, worse. And to get out of it, there's something called cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. It's a very powerful tool because it helps people change behavior, see the patterns they're doing, and reconnect with what is the way sleep is supposed to operate in their life. However, in mental health, again, which is, you know, I specialize in the treatment of mental health patients with sleep disorders for several decades. There is always an emotional context as well. And that emotional context would benefit from psychotherapy if the psychotherapist would help them connect that with the sleep. Because many people eventually develop a fear relationship with sleep. They actually become either afraid they're not going to get it. They're afraid that if they do go to sleep, they won't wake up. Or they just have all this antagonism about it because, like, I sleep so poorly, and this is this whole one-third of my life that is a negative. You know, they're walking into a torture chamber at night to go and have a bad night of sleep. So all of that has to be dealt with, and some of it can be dealt with with cognitive behavioral therapy. But many people, and this is where therapists can play a tremendous role if they want to learn these skills, and some of them already have the skill, they just don't even realize how to apply it, in helping people overcome their fears as it relates to sleep. But then again, let me give you a, a, a point. 
that we brought up in, in, a, in an earlier book called Sound Sleep, Sound Mind, published in 2007. Before then, in research, we developed what we called the respiratory threat matrix of chronic insomnia. And this is so important because when I talk a lot in my book, Life-Saving Sleep, about emotion, I also talk about it in Sound Sleep. I talk about emotion so much for the following reason. If you are suffering any sort of breathing event at night, and it's occurring hundreds of times, you're actually experiencing a mini suffocation experience. And during the daytime, if I'm working with patients, I say, put your hands around your throat and choke yourself just a little bit. <laughs> and they look at me like, what are you trying to prove, Dr. Craig? I say, well, what do you think you feel? What do you think you're feeling during the night? If hundreds of times during the night, your airway is blocked up, even if it's blocked 10%, 20%, 30%. And this is key because so many people in sleep medicine are not paying attention to the fact that sleep apnea does not always look just like frank sleep apnea. There's another condition called upper airway resistance, where it's a more subtle version of sleep apnea. The point is, to suffer many suffocations means you're being assaulted all night long. You're being traumatized all night long. Why would you feel good the next morning? And why would you ever want to go back into your bedroom the next night? You wouldn't. Yeah, it's kind of like being waterboarded all night. Absolutely. So I'm wondering in this last segment if we could talk about future developments in sleep medicine. What's on the horizon or, or what's relatively new and, and what could be happening in the next 5, 10, even 20 years in, in this field? So I want to talk about that and I also want to talk about just a little bit about early interventions, conservative steps people can take because as I was trying to get at with sleep hygiene was the fact that sleep hygiene works when you've already treated the bigger problems. When you try to use sleep hygiene first, you're really just chipping away at something and it does very little uh, to help the individual. So the big wave of the future is gonna be all about the glymphatic system. And the glymphatic system is the brain cleansing system inside the brain. So now we know, and everybody in sleep must have always, professionally in sleep, must have known this because we said, well, how do you go from feeling tired and sleepy at night, or even worse, feeling depressed, and you get up the next morning after a great night of sleep, like, now you feel great. Wait, does that, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how, how do you switch that? How could sleep do that? Well, sleep does it in part because it's looking, for no better words, the waste products that are in your brain. And it is cleansing them during that process of sleep. And it cleanses the brain much better when you are deeply asleep. And that's why delta sleep is so important. The same glymphatic system people are looking at for whether or not it is eliminating toxic biomolecules that are precursors to dementia. So that's going to be the single biggest thing, because now we're going to say, oh, well, sleep really is important now because it's going to help us prevent dementia. Because there is this brainwashing system called the glymphatic system. 
That's lymphatic with a G, so it's glymphatic. And it's G for, for glial cells, right? The uh, support cells for the brain. Exactly, exactly. <clears throat> right, it was only discovered in 2015. It was probably looked at or known probably before that in some ways, but the most official discovery point I've seen is by a doctor, I think it's Nedergaard in the Netherlands. She also may do work at Rochester in New York. And she published something in 2015. I think that was the first publication that I'm aware of. So people are looking at that. People have all kinds of patents out there trying to figure out ways to improve the way the glymphatic system is going to operate. Will there be a medication? Will there be an intervention? And right now, I'll tell you, even though it's exploratory, the best invention is putting somebody on a PAP machine for sleep disorder breathing, because that's the person who's suffering this problem the most. Why? Because they don't get into deep sleep. Yeah, if, if I could just clarify, so a PAP rather than CPAP, and this is a really interesting part of your book, that most people seem to be on CPAPs, you know, continual pulmonary airway pressure. But in fact, what's much better is if the machine can tell when you're breathing out and when you're breathing in, so that it gives you the pressure when you need it to inhale, but releases the pressure for the exhale. And that's why you're using the abbreviation PAP rather than CPAP. Right, right. Thank, thanks for that uh, point, because uh, we stopped using CPAP in 2005. That's 18 years ago. We stopped prescribing it unless an insurance company forced us to do so. We were able to work with the insurance companies because we were dealing with people with anxiety in particular. And we said they don't do well with CPAP, but they do extremely well with bi-level. Another device is called auto-bi-level. A third device is called adaptive servoventilation. We don't have to get into the technicality of it other than to say they do monitor the breathing while you're sleeping and adapt in a certain way to make it a more gentle delivery of the pressure, rise air. But they also seem to help promote people staying in REM sleep longer or staying in delta sleep longer. At least that's our clinical experience. Again, some of these things are not research with randomized controlled trials. But I will say that in our clinical experience, we saw this for more than a decade, that these advanced devices were producing higher quality of sleep. Now, if you get higher quality of sleep, that means you're getting deeper sleep. That means that glymphatic system should be operating better. One of the things in the future would be a, a much, much better at-home screening. I know that there are home sleep studies available now, but they're not nearly as good as in the lab. And if, if this problem is as common as it seems to be, I mean, everyone gets tested, their eyes tested for whether they need glasses. And eventually everyone gets, a lot of people get tested for hearing aids. But being tested for, for sleep apnea is so much more cumbersome than either of those two things. But if it could be made easier and, and less of an ordeal, then many more people will get diagnosed and need to be. Well, since the pandemic there has been absolutely this trend to go towards home sleep testing. So now most sleep centers around the country have made it easier. You only come into the lab for certain kinds of cases or certain kinds of tests that require the lab. But most people nowadays start out with a home sleep test and coming down the line are all kinds of invention. There's an invention that's coming out or is just out where you put a monitor just on the chin and that's it it's connected you know by by bluetooth and they're picking up all kinds of valuable information 
there's a there's a ring that's out there that also grabs a lot of data. So some of them will actually be able to diagnose sleep disorder breathing. Some of them will be able to just monitor your sleep, but monitor it really well. The irony is home sleep tests do not measure sleep. You probably didn't know that. Home sleep tests are only there to monitor breathing and oxygen. So it's quite an irony in the field that you got to go into the lab to measure your sleep. And that's why I tell mental health patients at some point you would like to be in the lab because you'd like to find out about your delta and your REM sleep. And that's because it doesn't measure EEG. If you, if you can't get access to the brain waves, you don't know what the depth of sleep is. Right. And this new device that's coming out or is out on the chin is actually attempting to monitor sleep stages as well. So it's a phenomenal device. So what I wanted to finish with, or at least get across, is that people who have these sleep breathing issues do tend to get nervous about, well, sleep lab, and then put this big pap machine on my face, and I don't know if I want to go down that pathway. So I explained, you know, there's a lot of conservative steps a person can do uh, long before they go down that. We did a, a randomized controlled trial 20 years ago and showed that if you have insomnia and the likelihood of a sleep breathing condition, which by the way, you know, we've published this repeatedly, that most chronic insomniacs have something going on with their sleep breathing. So we did a study and 75% of those who got a nasal strip, just a nasal strip on their nose, one month later, 75% reported clinically meaningful improvement in their insomnia, just with a nasal strip. How does the nasal strip work? It literally goes over your nose and opens up the nasal valve, so more air volume is coming in through your nostrils. So it's basically encouraging the person to, to breathe through their nose at night. And then if you do that, then you're much less likely to close off. Right, right. But it's also that that you get actually more volume. I mean, you literally, literally it's not like pressurized air. It's just the way the valve is expanded on your nose, your nose permits more air to come through. And there's another product, several products on the market called nasal dilators which are a little bit more difficult to get used to. But once you figure out the right type of device and you figure out how to place it, that seems to be even more powerful. Let me give you a good example. Most people do not realize that when you wake up at night to use the bathroom, it's not necessarily a normal behavior. Most people are taught to believe, well, doesn't everybody get up to pee? after the age of 40, at least once per night. It turns out sleep disordered breathing makes your kidneys work overtime and you make more urine during the night. That's the reason you wake up at night to pee. So we've actually had some recent experimentation. This is all anecdotal. This is not studies. With people who have the problem of waking up at night to use the bathroom, they put in a nasal dilator. And that symptom is gone. So that means their sleep disorder breathing was effectively treated in part, at least. I'm not saying it's the full treatment. Because it turns out nocturia, that's the word for trips to the bathroom at night. Nocturia is the easiest thing to treat when you have sleep apnea. Sleepiness and tiredness 
and cognitive issues are the hardest thing to treat. So you can give somebody a relatively simple treatment for sleep disorder breathing, even like a low level of CPAP, and their nocturia trips might go completely away. But you get better results, you have to go you know, for more advanced strategies. Anyway, things like the nasal strips, the nasal dilators, but even before any of that, we learned that most people normalize their nasal breathing and they think that it must be perfectly fine. And we listen to them and we discuss with them the points about what if your nasal breathing isn't normal? What if you're actually suffering low-level congestion? So we began doing stuff with just nasal saline rinses, especially for people who said, I'm not interested in any of this other stuff. Can you give me something simple? We give them nasal saline rinses to do three times a day. They come back two weeks later and go, that's really weird. Like, I'm sleeping better. I've just gotten all this junk out of my nose. My nose is working better. So I've got a whole series on my website, barrycracomd.com. It's free. It's called The Nose Nose. And it explains all this information about how people normalize their nasal breathing and all of these different steps you can take to learn how to breathe through your nose better, in particular by treating the congestion. So it, this really speaks to the need for patients with a CE uh, on the part of the patient to solve the problem because there's so many different possible uh, problems. Uh, I mean, even even if it's diagnosed correctly, the, the treatment options are, are quite a few. And even if you need a PAP machine, there, there's a lot of options for there. There's options for what kind of mask. And it really requires a lot of trial and error until you find the right solution. So I'm wondering if in just the last couple of minutes, uh, just very briefly, if we could touch on nightmare therapy again, because I, I think you're unusual as a sleep medicine specialist that you are interested in the psychological end of things too. And you came up with a really interesting therapy for uh, treating nightmares directly. It was not by resolving uh, trauma, for instance, but by giving the uh, patient control over the uh, nightmare and, and learning how to modify it. Right. So I was very, very fortunate, again, Divine Providence, uh, to meet up with Dr. Robert Kellner uh, in the Department of Psychiatry, and then a resident at the time, Dr. Joseph Neidhart, who's still Dr. Joseph Neidhart, who is still practicing in uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And together, we you know, published papers on the and developed imagery rehearsal therapy, uh, which is a very simplistic technique when you hear it, where you're simply asking the individual to select a nightmare and to change the nightmare. Dr. Neidhart's instruction is the same one we still use. It's change the nightmare any way you wish. Meaning you daydream about your nightmare, right? So you're practicing, in, practicing during the day. Exactly. It's a guided, it's, yeah, it's guided daydream. Right, guided daydreaming. And so during the day, you're doing this process and you go, all right, well, I'm going to reflect for a couple of minutes, a couple of seconds on the new version of the new dream you've created and do that for several weeks. And let's see how it goes. And it sounds simple and it does work simply, so to speak, because I think the human imagery system, which I write a lot about in the Life Saving Sleep book, I do think that imagery is incredibly more powerful than we realize. Nonetheless, when we're dealing with PTSD patients, 
and teaching them IRT. Depending upon the complexity of their PTSD, depending upon how long they've had the nightmares, depending upon whether the nightmares are replay nightmares of trauma, IRT is something that could take 10 hours of actual treatment individually or in group before the person can embrace it and apply it and use it successfully. So I want to get that point across. I always do because for some people, IRT is like a slam dunk. Like, oh, you mean I can take control of my nightmares? I can start changing them and rehearsing the new dreams? For other people, we always recommend doing it with a therapist. And we even have a booklet that my wife and I wrote years ago, Turning Nightmares into Dreams, which we, we sell on our website, thebarrycracomd.com. Anyway, I think that we're out of time. So Barry Craco, a board-certified internist, sleep medicine specialist, professor of psychiatry and behavioral health at Mercer University School of Medicine. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you very much. You've had a great discussion. I really appreciate your questions. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.